Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturdays. Hey, this is Anna David. You are listening to After Party Podcast all about addiction and recovery. I host another podcast that is called You've Got Issues with Anna David. You can find that wherever podcasts are not sold because they're free. I just sounded like the guy from that commercial about mattresses, which is a funny thing since my guest today is a voiceover artist. But here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to get right into the guest because I'm tired of hearing myself talk. If you want to hear more of me talk, go listen to my other podcast because that's where I'm getting it all out. I will just tell you this one fact, which is that After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, which is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest resource for rehab reviews. If you're looking for treatment, if your loved one is looking for treatment, that's where you go. You can also email me, Anna, at theafterpartygroup.com. I promised I'd get right into the guest. I'm going to get right into the guest. Maurice Lamarche, which is a terribly fun name to say, is a wonderful guy. I have known uh, during my entire sobriety. He's someone I used to see all the time. See him less now, but I read somewhere something that he said out there in the world about recovery, and I said, I didn't know Maurice was open about this, and so I messaged him, and I was able to get him on this show. You have heard his voice so much, it's amazing you're not exhausted by the number of times you've heard his voice. Where do I start? Truly, where do I start? Well, I could start by telling you that he is best known for voicing the brain in Animaniacs. His uh, numerous characters that he voiced in Futurama, um, he won an Emmy for. So, and then there's everything in between. Transformers, The Simpsons, Batman, Kung Fu Panda, The Powerpuff Girls, Rick and Morty, Girl Meets World. Okay, I hadn't heard of that one. The Legend of Korra. There are so many, and many commercials, and many other things, and he's a brilliant impressionist. You get into hear all about that in his interview, which I'm going to give you now. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris hilton I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to Nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? So yeah, we're going. It's so nice of you to come in and do this. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, we've known each other, I was trying to remember, probably about 16 years. At least. Yeah. And we have many mutual friends. We have many mutual friends. Now this is, I'm just springing a super weird thing at the beginning. I remember one time you telling me you had a really weird dream and I was in it. Yes. Do you remember that? I remember that, uh, that we stopped. Were you in it or? How would I know? I think, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm saying, I know I mentioned it to you. So I think you were in it. 
Yeah, why would you have just I randomly would, told me about would, a weird dream? Yeah, you're dream? right, you're right. You were in it. But it wasn't like a dirty dream. No, of course it no, wasn't, no, no, no. or you wouldn't have said anything. But I ran into you early in the morning, and I think you would have it that morning, and you yeah, said right. to me, you got this, right up. this yeah. is so weird. I, you wish were, I, I wish I could remember the dream. I don't think you could even remember it at the time. I think what you, it was one of those, well, you were you, but you were someone else. And yeah. we were in a tunnel. I think it's one of those things where the dream is so fresh and a lot of dreams occur and you sort of observe them from a distance, as it were. Yes. And then there are those dreams where you can actually like smell the cookies baking. Yes. And you're so present, you're so there in the dream. I had a dream like that about my father. The other, uh, it was an afternoon dream, actually. I just I took a quick little nap. I'm a big nap. And my dad was like, just, it was a mundane dream where he just was talking to me and giving me a bit of fatherly advice. But I mean, I, it's like I could smell his cologne. He was as tangible as could be. And then I woke up and I actually had myself just a little bit of a misty-eyed moment afterwards. He's been I gone bet. for, he's been gone since 1987. You know, so it's almost 30 years. That's the way it is with loss. In I mean, the just subconscious. Reach for them in your dreams. That's where they come visit you. Yeah, I almost had a misty-eyed moment with you just talking about oh, it. Oh, well. It's very sweet. Do you this is a weird thing that I've been asked and I can't answer. Do you dream in color? And do you see yourself or is it through your POV? I usually, I know that I dream in color because there are colors I refer to in the dreams and plus black and white pisses me off. So, you mean you say what a beautiful orange yeah, sunset? sunset or, you know, they look at this red towel I'm using to wash really? my hands or whatever. And I'm a POV dreamer. I don't think yeah, I yeah. ever see myself in the dream. I see everybody else. Yeah. I definitely, everything happens on at the end of my fingers. I kind of imagine most of us are that. Which is what that bugs me when I see a movie where they're showing a dream sequence and the guy's in the dream and I'm going, eh, the guy's not supposed to be there. Oh, good yeah, the guy, It's happening to the guy. He can't right. be in the dream. That's why we know it's not really a dream. Well, okay, because, yeah, because a lot of times the dream sequence is you then find out that it wasn't a dream or something like that, yes. and they couldn't pull one over on That's you. That's right, you exactly. This was a segue you almost, before we you even almost got started. wanted to be like Columbo comes out from behind a pillar and goes, excuse me, ma'am, I'm sorry to bother you, but that's not how dreams work. <laughs> Well, for anyone who's not already familiar with this, you just revealed that you are... My superpower. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know you could do... I mean, of course you can do imitations. I started out in stand-up comedy, doing impressions. I had an all-impressions act. In fact, the thing that I kind of was working on when I stopped was putting a little bit more point of view, a little bit more of me in the act because I pretty much just came on set up wacky situation for a celebrity that they shouldn't be in kind of thing and then went Peter Falk and Johnny Carson as waiters strange episode of Fantasy Island with me playing all the parts go and I finally went yeah I want to say something from the stage I don't want to just be this guy who puts on little skits but a natural offshoot of that of course was to take it into voiceover work which is where I butter my bread now the interesting part of stand-up comedy thing is just as I was getting good was when the disease, alcoholism, took hold. I often say I don't have any opinion on whether or not you're born with the illness or whether it develops based on circumstances, whether there's predilection or whether anybody could be turned into an alcoholic by enough tragedy, enough alcohol, enough self-obsession and enough fear. But for me, I definitely crossed the line when my father was murdered. That's why we both got a little misty-eyed. I know you know my story. I honestly had forgotten yeah, that part that, of the story. And his wow. murder was sort of a huge shock to the system, 
presented me with an existential dilemma. Is there goodness in the world? Would a good God allow this? Nice guy like my father being killed by the psychopath who killed him. The psychopath apparently had a jailhouse conversion. Well, what does that mean? My dad's in hell while the psychopath's going to heaven. And it just spun me out. And my answer to that was to just numb off as much as I could. How old were you with that? I was 27. And well, what was your experience with drinking up until that point? I was pretty much a normal drinker. Well, but a normal drinker up to the age of 27 is a pretty hard, heavy drinker, wouldn't well, you say? Well, I would say I, I probably went drinking a couple nights a week with my friends, but I was always the, like the designated driver. I didn't go over that line until I began to literally slam alcohol and a couple of other substances into me to just numb that, that pain and that feeling fear and just that that the scream that painting the scream that moment that would come up for me every day and then the drinks began to take the drink it no longer became about killing the pain of dad it just became about i don't know how to live without the drink and without the substances were you conscious of the fact that you were trying to drown out the scream certainly you knew initially yeah in fact I, i even said when a couple of friends and my wife made mention although we were just living together at the time i would my mantra was, you don't know what it's like to have your father murdered. I need to kill this pain. Somewhere in there, there was a strawberry that gave me the allergy, you know. Mm, the, yeah, the, that the, one. The cucumber became the pickle. And it just became about, I don't know how not to drink today. How long did that take, that transition? I was a real flash-in-the-pan kind of story. I mean, I wish I had this long, dramatic story. 60 days? No, three and a half years. I would say from the real getting really bad, noticeably bad, like crossing that line, to the day I got sober, which was January 20th, 1989. So as we inaugurate our new president, I'll celebrate 28 years. And every time we've inaugurated a president, it's been a multiple of four for me because it's been an unbroken sobriety. I just don't drink one day at a time, as I know most of your guests have talked about. And I shouldn't, you know, I got to tell you, there were a couple of other runs at getting sober, but it was treatment, it was hospital programs and things like that. And, you know, I never quite got I can't take the first drink. That was all that fancy stuff, you know, the $13,000 big book. I just never got, hey, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. How many times did you go to treatment? I went to one treatment and made a couple of other like inpatient things. And you really wanted? One residential treatment. I wanted and yet I still wanted to be able to get away with a glass of wine with dinner. What do you mean no glass of wine with dinner? I understand the other stuff, but you're telling me I just can't have some red wine with my, can't have some Chianti with my fava beans. I just wanted to be able to manage and control. Control. control and enjoy, which they often say one or the other. You can right. control but not enjoy. Some alcoholics right. can. And you can enjoy but you won't be controlling. And I didn't get it until January 20th, 1989. I don't know what half a sober person said to me. It's the when a caboose, when a train kills you. When you get hit by a train, it's not the engine that kills you. It's not the caboose that kills you. It's the engine, right? And I said, yeah. So I just don't take the first drink. So you literally remember the moment it flipped for you. You mean in sobriety? Yes. You yes. remember this person I remember saying that guy. Thing. And I remember his friend saying, and all you got to do is stay sober till your head hits the pillow tonight. And I had always heard the one day at a time trope and thought, well, at 12.01 a.m., it's a new day. And if I still feel like crap, I'm going to Hughes Market and getting a bottle. And that's what I would do. And wait, oh, you mean head hits the pillow? All right, I'll wait till my head hits the pillow. And then after I got that day, I don't know why, because I'd gotten a bunch of other one day at a time, but that day felt more like a miracle than any other of the days of sobriety that I'd had, where I just felt like I was kind of white knuckling it. I'd really made the surrender to the idea that this was an illness. I have it, and I can only do it with outside help, with help from others, with help from a power greater than myself, and just don't take the first drink. So how did you get 
get to the idea of a power greater than yourself that would allow the tragedy to happen? Well, that there, I kind of skimmed through a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Although I've often said it's harder for me to understand when good things happen to bad people, which is a cute little joke. But in that book, it's a rabbi named Harold Kushner. He talks about a God who doesn't control everything. A God who doesn't even necessarily allow everything. He simply watches and gives strength when called on. And I thought to myself, I can, I can wrap my mind around that because there are so many, I mean, leaving my dad out of it, there's so many even more senseless things that happen in the world that I have difficulty believing that A, God protects anybody because that means he likes some of his kids better than other kids or that he or allows things because he's got a better plan. We were very close to, when I say we, I mean my entire family, my wife and myself, but especially my son, who's 22 years old and an awesomely talented guitar player. And he went on tour with the singer Christina Grimmie it's two years ago. And they were the best of friends, like as close as friends as you can be, a guy and a girl and still be buddies. I mean, she was at my house two, three times a week. And as we know the story goes, she was murdered by a fan at a meet and greet the night before the Pulse Club murders, but just down the street from it in Orlando, Florida. And my son is totally devastated by this, as are we all. But I don't have a belief that God allowed Christina. I think Christina was killed by a sick bastard who then blew his own brains out after killing her. Where God is in that is how we reach out to him and say, help me through this day. And I know her parents are very, very spiritual and very Christian. And they've shown a strength that to me, it was not possible when I was, when I was suffering through the loss of my dad. And, you know, I know that they believe that there's a plan operating and that's fine. That's for them. That's absolutely for them. And it helps them. I had just have to believe that God watched it and cried more, more than any of us did and is there to give us strength. That's the spiritual approach I take. Right. And then the world is just sort of haphazard and random. It, the, I believe, I believe, unfortunately, that things just happen. They don't necessarily happen for a reason. They just happen. And it's up to us to do good, to help one another. And that's one of the great things that happens in a lot of programs. Well, especially the big one, which I will not say whether or not I'm a member of because it's the nature of it to be anonymous. But I have a lot of friends who are in it and they've told me. How do you like that for a little, a little loud? <laughs> it's brilliant. The most certain relief is promised in stopping thinking about yourself, stopping going after whatever it is you're chasing, whether it's relief from pain or just even trying to be sober by holding off on taking the drink and, and opening up the book or whatever it is, and go help somebody. Helping somebody else is the greatest relief from any ill. And I think that's what the higher power of my understanding wants from me. Just be helpful. Okay, interesting. And... What do, you, do you think that played a part in your obsession being removed? On a daily basis. I mean, I can, the obsession can come back. All I have to do is stop doing the work, the simple kit of spiritual tools. If I let up on that, it may not come the next day or the day after that or the day after that. But if, I, if I'm not helping others and really paying attention to my own spiritual fitness and involve, be, you know, being involved in some prayer and meditation, I can start obsessing on myself. I can start obsessing on the idea that maybe a glass of wine would be nice with dinner. Has tonight. that happened in the 28 years? Uh, there have been some times where I've been a bit lax. Luckily, I've noticed the thinking creep up because I had alcoholic thinking long before I had alcoholic drinking. Yes. As a, you know, as a little kid, I remember being a little more self-obsessed even than the other kids. How did you know? I just did. I Not used at to, the time. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you. When I was a little guy, there used to be this TV show. You won't remember it because you're far too young, or as I'm ancient. There was the show called Wendy and Me, starring God, George Burns. Thank God I don't remember. I was really no. worried I was going to remember. Yeah, no, you won't remember. Like, I'm much older than you. And it was, it was I, I remember I was about five years old. George Burns would turn to the camera and break the fourth wall. So whenever something wacky happened with Wendy and her 
husband in the building, George Burns would turn to the camera and go, can you believe this? And, you know, and I loved that. I loved the breaking of the fourth wall. And I'd be five years old and I'd walk around and the teacher we're talking to, and I'd turn to an imaginary camera and go, can you believe this at four years old, you know, five years old rather. And, and I remembered thinking like the whole world was this television show about me that, and I always acted like that, even as a little kid, that somehow the TV cameras were following me and that I acted as though I was in a TV show. I had the exact same thing. And not only that, I was just talking to a friend about that. And she too is now sober. Oh, so there may be something to this. Maybe the TV camera's God. Maybe oh. we were talking to God the whole time. Or maybe our lives are the Truman Show and we still haven't figured it out. Right. Just us and my friend. We've all got our own Truman Show and somebody somewhere in the celestial heavens is following. We're, we're all a channel. We all have our own us-tube channel. So yeah, we were just early to catch on to that, you so. and I and I my friend. I think so. But no, it, that's so interesting because I would say, okay, sure, you can call that alcoholism if you want, but we were absorbed by pop culture. And Certainly. I remember it was one day at a time when that show came on oh, yes. and I thought about the credits and I distinctly remember the credits in the opening, uh-huh. whatever you call that. And I remember my mom was like me, we were at the house and my mom was like meeting with this like decorator. And I just remember like walking up this driveway thinking that like I was the opening credits for my television show. <laughs> so this, I never pictured credits. That's interesting. No, you know I how like they that. used to do credits? No, in the I like that. I yeah, it's good, right? Because you need it to have like a picturesque shot without dialogue of course you know so but so this in no way yeah like i said it doesn't it may actually support your theory that that was alcoholic thinking i followed of course by i was always the sensitive kid uh i was always the one my father used to say i can always find you the one crying in the friggin' schoolyard Aww. everything hurt my feelings yeah. and i didn't grow out of that i had that little level of sensitivity all through my young adult life and, and yet you go into comedy it is yet, ironic and yet i go into comedy. Well, it's because I can't sing or dance. But how many, you know, A, comedians are alcoholics and many of them sober now, and how many people who are arguably the people who should be the last to go out seeking public validation or rejection are the ones doing it? I think it's uh, the adrenal rush. I also had that weird experience of the first time I did it exceptionally well. I think if I'd have died on stage, I wouldn't have gone for it. But it went really, really well. So I got that endorphin rush. I got almost a standing ovation. I had a lot of those impressions in my act, and people love impressions. It's like the closest thing to magic without actually having props there and rabbits and things like that. Changing your voice, becoming somebody else. So I got big applause just for doing good impressions. It wasn't necessarily all that hilarious, but I was hooked. It's another another addiction. I want that feeling again. I want to feel the rush of the people's laughter coming over me. I want to see them get on their feet again. And so, you know, anyway, I had I had a crowd-pleasing act. I never took a lot of chances because I wanted to make sure my drug, other people's approval and laughter, would still come towards me. Whereas my old pal Jim Carrey threw away the impressions circa 1985 and started doing this weird tightrope thing at the comedy store where sometimes he would do his entire set without getting a laugh but he refused to do impressions and just talk to the audience and from that grew who Jim became he had the uh, guts to do that that, that I, I wouldn't take that chance yeah and I've always liked that safe feeling apart from going the actual going out in front of people it's like I'll go that far but I won't go all the way and maybe that's why I had such a short drinking and using I'll go far enough to that I endanger my life but I won't like flatline three times before I get so so as as soon as I started feeling the first nip of the ringer because first nip for me was that my 
then girlfriend, now wife, I had an intervention for, and I, I'm actually the one who suggested it. She had this like list of like maybe 12 friends of mine, the 12 people who would still talk to me. That's and I a saw lot the, of people. But yeah. yeah, you only had three years to really right. get so, tired of you. But she had this list on the kitchen table and, and she had moved out. She'd gone to stay with a friend and she had moved out, but there was this list. And when she came back to get some of her stuff, I know what this is. This is an intervention. You're going to have an intervention for me, aren't you? Well, I got news for you. I've seen clean and sober. Okay. I've seen it. I know what an intervention, and that's not going to work with me. It turns out she wasn't going to have an No, this was a list of people she was going to call if I, she came home one day and found my body. You know, these were the people she wanted to call and say, passed away. Because I was doing that level of drugs. Like I said, I didn't flatline the three, at the rate they required three times as most people have in their stories. But you know, I pulled back, from, I oh. pulled back from the precipice just in time, but she had this intervention for me that I suggested. So you said, well, instead of calling them when I'm dead, why not call them now? I didn't say anything. She just went, it's like, bing, a little light bulb. I know, I'll have an intervention. She so, said it to you? No. You just... No, she secretly did it. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I came home one day from... And they were all 12 were there? They were there. Yeah. They were there. And, you know, and I threw them all out. Did you? I did. So like the TV show, like that, that level of yeah, anger and... Yeah, and I just said, and... get out, get out. And then all of a sudden, the one guy I didn't know, the guy who the intervention leader, I said, you can stay. Yeah, all right, you can talk to me, but I don't want to hear from them. And he's the guy that convinced me to go into treatment. A guy named Lou Sandman. Lou Sandman. He was the Sandman, man. But Lou was the uh, liaison between treatment programs and the um, and the SAG and AFTRA oh, health plans. That was, he must have been a busy guy. Yeah, he was, especially <laughs> back in 1988. And so are, are those 12 people still your friends? Yes. All yes. of them. Yeah, we don't see each other as, as often because a couple of them become very, very busy. Big people, you know. Jim Carrey, etc. No, I'm not saying Jim he was there. I'm just Jim, saying Jim he was, was not old there. Jim, Jim and I, we were friendly. And in fact, like the first time Jim came out here, we hung out for three days. I used to say Jim Carrey stayed on my couch. I offered him my couch, but he wanted to be in a hotel. But I picked him up at the hotel at like 8.30 in the morning. We went pancakes. He hung out at my place all day long. And then I took him back to the hotel late at night after the comedy store. So, but Jim and I used to hang out and we're still very friendly with each other whenever we see each other. But no, I mean, Howie Mandel was a dear friend and he was there and... Uh, He's a wonderful... I interviewed him once. Yeah. Um, spent the day with him and his wife yeah. and... I was it, at their wedding. I, da I danced at their wedding. She's cool. They're, they're so great. And um, yeah, I remember it was that show... Anyway, I'm sort of sidetracking, but he had that show about like before his big resurgence. He had me watch it in his screening room with him sitting this close to me watching my reactions. It was the right. most like nerve-wracking yeah. experience of my life. It was like a prank show, right? I don't remember anything except that he was sitting five feet from me, but I do think, yes, it was a prank show. Yeah, I can't remember. He had a cute name. It was great. Okay, so Howie, Jim, everybody's... Yeah, they're all they're all at the house. We'll say Jim was there, even though he wasn't, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a super fabulous intervention. Michael Rotenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's important to have an A-level, yes. A-list intervention. If you, when you have an A-list intervention, you don't have to go over the precipice and flatline three times before you get sober. And I had only the best at my intervention and threw them out. But they were dear, now the truth is they were dear friends who were concerned about their pal who'd just gone too far. And did you then embrace the sober community right away? Did you start making friends there? I did, and yet I wouldn't get in the middle of the sober community. I will always, and I, this is the other thing, 
is that I just hung out on the sidelines with my back against the wall and watched everybody else. Just like in that dream thing we're talking about. I really didn't, after I had that, that moment of clarity on January 20th, 1989, I got in the middle a little more of the sober community and I started getting active. And that included sweeping up cigarette butts at the gathering places where the sober community, who may or may not be an institution with two initials in it, doing things like that, getting humble, just helping the sober community thing carry on. These are the things that, that everybody has to do. And certainly it was something that I needed to do. And it made me right size. And what about those people? Although today I'm plus size. But what that's about another those program. <laughs> who don't think you need to do that, who seem to be just fine. That's their journey. I don't judge anybody's recovery. If it's working for you, if you're not putting a substance in your body one day at a time, you're not being a complete asshole, God bless you. If you don't need to do that, there's many ways to sobriety. I don't think it has a lock on it. And even they say they have no monopoly on spirituality. So whatever works. So here's what I find The only one I don't believe in is, is the one, what was it called? MM. Oh, yeah. Moderation. Well, yeah, moderation management. I, yeah, moderation management. I don't believe that works. When your founder ends up. Well, yeah, but she, you know, she ended up killing herself later. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. But Whole yeah, thing. I mean, um, sadly, she had to be the one to prove it didn't yeah, work. Yeah, here I was about to make this, you know, cavalier remark about her. I'm sorry to hear that she. No, no. It was really it's a sad story. I was actually once on Dr. Drew's show with her years before. She haunted? Yeah. No, she was destroyed by it. But yeah, I mean, there are uh, treatment centers that te- I, I had somebody on my podcast who runs a treatment center. It hasn't aired yet that teaches moderation. There's really? only one that really? I know of, but he's got it. Well, let's see how that works. Well, now here's my question for you. What I found interesting about what you said was this idea that the alcoholism did not kick in until after your father's death. And yet you always had alcoholic thinking. So what do you think was going on those... 24 years. Well, I think if alcoholism is a stew, I think I was at a low, low simmer. And then after my dad was killed, I started throwing other substances into the mix, some of which accelerated my metabolism, let's say. And I think that those substances might have uh, turned up the heat under the stew or even been like a microwave oven. You know how like a pot roast can take like six, seven hours in the stove, but 10 minutes. 10 minutes in a microwave. I think that's what happened when I started adding other substances to my alcohol consumption. It just, boom. And I was already just fried. All the part of the brain, wherever it may be, that uh, makes you not able to, the enzymes that deplete, that makes you not able to take one drink without experiencing the phenomenon of craving. It just got superheated and and I crossed the line much faster than I would have. Who knows? Maybe I'd only now be needing to get sober and I'd be, you know, like a street wino or something like that. I'd much rather it happen the way it did. I got to have my 30s and my 40s and my 50s, uh, you know, living a spiritual life and and getting to help people. I had a very similar, much like our our co-occurring television shows of our childhood. I had a very similar the, the Anna David show? The Anna David show. And she's walking up the driveway and the yes. credits are rolling? Yes. <laughs> I love that. In a sort of one day at a time fashion, which I don't remember one I day I couldn't at a watch time. one day at a time because my parents divorced and my father moved to Europe for a time. So I was, you know, raised by a single mother. Is that what it was about? I don't even remember that's what yeah, it, was it was about. Yeah, it was about... It was, uh, and Mackenzie Phillips. Yeah. Previous Mackenzie Phillips and yes. Valerie Bertinelli. And they were raised by their single mom, that lovely red-haired lady whose name I can't remember. That was switched the genders around and there we were. My brother Paul and I being raised by mom, by Norma, and, and struggling through and having no money and all of it. So I live this. I don't need to watch. Let me watch Kojak instead. And he solves crimes. But my point was that I too had the same thing of just if I it hadn't been for one particular other. I can I say my substance. If it hadn't been for coke, I think I would have been like a practicing alcoholic for a very until I killed right. someone in a drug okay. driving accident. Yeah. Probably. 
You say Coke. I say Pepsi. <laughs> so what do you do today when difficult situations come up? The situations, the feelings that you had to numb? Well, one of the things I've, and not to over-intellectualize it, but I've sort of learned that uncomfortable feelings are part of life. I think I had a fantasy that there are these people out there who never have a problem, who never have an uncomfortable feeling, who never have a loss, uh, whether it's a person or a job or a romantic relationship, and that their lives are running perfectly, and I'm the only one that has to experience these feelings. Everybody has to. What I've learned to do is sit still and know that the feeling is going to pass over me. Now, that said, there's one addiction left that I, my wife is on me about it, and I'm getting ready to get ready. Audience can't see me, but I'm a, I'm a portly man. I'm a man who eats. So do you think it, it is an addiction? I think that there are certain foods that absolutely have an addictive... Flour and sugar. Flour and sugar. Those two things. When I stay away from flour and sugar, it almost melts off of me, and I don't experience cravings. But if I allow myself, I allow some sugar in, like I did this weekend. I actually I went to a little crepe place in the valley with our mutual friend. Sarah. She talks about you so fondly. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. she's, she's great. She's like a dear pal. Uh, I do believe that man-woman pal ships are possible. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And and she's a dear pal. But we went to uh, this crepe place and I decided it had been a couple of weeks since I'd had some sugar and that she'd had the chocolate crepe and I tried one taste and I thought, okay, all right, one last time. Take the denial that it's not the substance. It's my attitude towards it. I'll have this and then it'll be fine. And I've been on a sugar run since Saturday and today I haven't had any. What does a sugar run look like? A what sugar run mean? for me, if it's a disease, I'm in the disease mm. of sugar while being sober from alcohol and drugs. For me, it's making little stops. It's before I get home, taking a trip I wouldn't take to, to go get like what? To like go get six donuts? Like what does that mean? I would get, I'm a candy bar person. Yeah. And I'm especially a uh, rare candy bar person. So I'll go to the British shops and get Cadbury. the Cadbury or Crunchy, Crunchies, which is a Cadbury, or Violet Crumble, which is a better version of the Crunchy bar. Or, you know, down to Monsieur Marcel at the farmer's market and hit, hit them up for some of their imported chocolates. And I'll come sometimes raid my kid's stash. You know, my kid's skinny as, as, as a rail, but he's got that metabolism. But there's a box of Pop-Tarts that he doesn't know that I know where he keeps his Pop-Tarts in the garage. So, because uh, that's where he jams. You know, that's where he had his band all... You know, stuff, so. But it's bad for him, so you're really just doing him Yeah, of course I am. But I mean, I, I was going to sit and watch uh, Timeless, because my other obsession is time travel. Any show with time travel, I'm into it. Interesting. So Timeless is a television show. Oh, yeah. yeah right it's, now. It's, it. it's new on NBC. Yes. I don't do the promos for it, though. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Darian Harwood, Darian Harwood does a fantastic job, so we'll leave that to him. Dorian Harwood. Sorry about that. Sorry, Dorian. I know your name. Anyway. An um, active listener. I'll have you know. Yes? I don't know. I no, I just all us voiceover people know each other. Yeah. So it's really interesting to sit here and do a podcast and not tell you how I came up with the voice for the, of the brain. It's actually really a relief. Okay, but tell, so just let's no, just... No, I don't no, want... Let, because, <laughs> because we'll delve... It didn't... We got so into... I had a water, by the way. Oh, did I move? Did I, I don't steal know. it? Is that, I, is that my water? Yes, if, oh, if it was Arrowhead yeah. I and mean, Crystal Geyser. Yes. That was a trick. Ah, very good. I just don't want to get too gravelly for your... For your listeners, I don't want to be them. Do you have to pay extra? So talk to my listeners just briefly about your voiceover career and what that's. I think I started to go down this road. You know, we talked about the anonymous programs and then me pulling back from the precipice, both of addiction and in comedy. I love the anonymity of voiceovers now. 
But your voice is very distinct. Well, as we talked about, there have been things I've heard you on and I did not realize they you were you. You didn't know it was me. Yeah. Uh, which is what I love. I've been on, uh, I think the last count, 150 cartoon shows. And I never played the same character twice. On Futurama, I have played, somebody counted, somebody who had a lot more time in his hands than I do, and counted up how many voices each of the eight actors on the show do. Katie Segal does one, Leela, and she's brilliant at it. But I did 72 characters. On, 72 on distinct characters characters, one-offs, recurrings, semi-regulars and regulars. On that so one show. 72 so when you, And then when you count 150 shows, you're yeah, that's just, just counting there's just Yeah, that's just one show. On real Ghostbusters, I was Egon. Dr. Egon Spengler, I collect spores, mold, and fungus. And I was also like a ton of ghosts and creatures and things like that. Street vendors, that type of thing. On The Critic with John Lovitz, I played his Australian best friend, Jeremy Hawk. And I also played Shackleford the butler. But I was also Orson Welles. Every time Orson Welles did a frozen peas commercial, and which is the same voice I use for the brain with just a little hint of Vincent Price thrown in. It's just, I, I get to play around and nobody knows it's me, which is great because there's no overexposure. It's like winning the lottery, but you get the 26 annual payments instead of the lump sum because I get to keep working and nobody knows it's me. And so I have like this great 35 year run of never having no work. I'd much rather have that. And it's a career I need to be you busy forever. Yes. As opposed to, say, screenwriting, as opposed to TV writing. Well, I don't. I hope for all my TV writer friends that that proves not to be no, true. No, but there's no ageism or anything else. There doesn't that. seem to be, no. Certainly in voiceover, no, you can work. Michael Bell is still working. Michael Bell is the guy who came up with Butter. Wow. Okay. Michael is still working, and they still pay him for that every time they pull that campaign out of mothballs. But Michael still does some Transformers stuff, and he's going up into his 80s. There are lots of... Uh, Frank Welker is 70, and Frank Welker has the longest listing on the IMDb of any actor, writer, director. You print out his um, thing in a regular 14-point Times Roman font, his listing will run, I think, up to about, around about 90 pages. He's just, he's been working since 1969. He was the original Freddy on Scooby-Doo, and he's still Freddy on Scooby-Doo, because the man never smoked, never drank, never did anything to damage these membranes, these magic membranes of his, Uh the vocal cords. Well, you only did it heavily for three years. I did it heavily for three years, but I'll tell you, I've lost a lot of my high end. So, uh, but, but luckily, from drinking? from drinking and smoking, I was, a, I was a cigar addict for 20 years. When did you stop that? I stopped that nine years ago. I smoked cigars even before I developed a, a drinking problem. I just, it's just one of those things that had fixed me. I find them so grotesque. I, aren't they awful? I was around someone smoking one earlier today. Oh my God. Plugging my nose. Well, I was that guy. I mean, I think you might, might remember even like maybe wanting to pull away from a hug because I was No, so, I didn't know. Really? When you said cigar smoker, I no, was, I was like, a, oh, I didn't no, know that. Yeah, I just constantly like four or five a day. So yeah. to some degree, I've, I've lost my high end, but it, I've gotten a little bit more of a bottom. I just don't want the throat cancer that might come with it. God forbid I get to have that gravelly voice sometimes when that comes in handy. In a world where one man gives up cigars. Did you like that movie, In a World? I did. I found it as a peek behind the curtain inside baseball movie. It played around with the reality of it. For instance, we are probably the least egotistical of the performer types, and we don't have the competition that's portrayed in that movie where they're like, we wish each other well. I mean, we're almost boring with how nice. We all know there's enough work to go around, and if I don't get it, I hope you get it, and I'll get the next one. They're very healthy people in the voiceover business. Yeah, so I think because you take the face out of the equation, 
So there's much less involved. You get very tied up in our faces. That's where our self-esteem is. That's where our egos are. And so our identities are in our faces. So take away our so-called identities. We have to prove it to you in other ways with our voices and hopefully with some talent. I mean, making people laugh without the benefit of your face is a tough thing. Luckily, and that's why Mel Blanc was so brilliant, by the way. I mean, yes, he had great animators over at Warner Brothers doing the Bugs Bunny cartoons, but before he did that, he was on the Jack Benny radio show, playing opposite the man known to have the best timing ever in the history of show business, Jack Benny. And so he learned by playing, thing of what, if you play tennis with somebody better than you, your game comes up. He became a master of comic timing with just his voice. Radio was a great proving ground for that type of uh, entertainment i.e. voiceovers, that type of thing. Well, okay, so Maurice, we have to work towards wrapping up. Is there any final message that you have? I was kind of trying, I was thinking, ooh, can I kind of work this idea around you? You lose your ego because you lose your face to some idea about recovery. But then that was beyond my brain's comprehension. (laughs) Well, you just did it. I think so. I think that letting go of self to the degree that it's possible, because if you totally let go of self, become a pure altruist. I mean, I was just listening to a, was it a report on NPR? Or maybe I read it. I can't remember. It was just just this week too. But I'm old, so this happens. It was about the difference in the type of brains that altruists have and psychopaths have. And it all had tied tied to the amygdala. And in a psychopath, the amygdala is very underdeveloped. And in altruists, and by definition, an altruist is someone who is willing to give up one kidney to a total stranger. That's the acid test they use. Um, I'm more towards a psychopath. Overdeveloped, tremendous empathy. But most of us fall somewhere in between those two extremes. Mm, closer to the psychopath. Uh, all right. I have to say that uh, I'm very attached to my body parts, but I will get up in the middle of the night and go sit with somebody if they tell me they're about to take a drink or be on the phone for an hour or whatever it takes. And you don't even need, necessarily need to be taking a drink. I think we're supposed to help others. The books that those friends of mine who are in that AA thing that I'm not necessarily in, it says helping others, not other alcoholics. It's not exclusive to that. So... Some degree of learned altruism brings relief from the condition of self-obsession. And um, ego almost has to diminish as a result of that. Especially if you don't take the credit for it and you go, well, something better than me is operating there, which I think there is. I do believe that there's definitely at least inspiration, nothing else. With this, all this great literature that we have, spiritual literature, where did it come from? Maybe that's the way God moves in, in our world, giving a bit of inspiration to people to write something that says, be better than you are, help others. Reach inside yourself. Don't hurt anybody, at the very least. You can't help, don't hurt. Yeah. That's such a good note. So that was Maurice LaMarche on After Party Pod. If you like this podcast, why not go review it, right? It's easy. Just go to iTunes. Just slap a rating on there. That's good enough. If you want to find out more about Maurice LaMarche, he is on Twitter at Maurice LaMarche. That, I was going to say dot com. You don't need the dot com. It's not even a part of it. Anyway, I'll see you next time. <laughs>